invite you to turn with me, if you have a copy of God's Word, to Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah is near the end or the close of the Old Testament. And remember the Old Testament, um, it's really the older. It's not old as in um, somehow uh, something that needs to be uh, improved upon. It is part of the all scripture, the Apostle Paul said, that is breathed out by God and is profitable. And I've chosen to preach on Zechariah at this time because I think of all the scriptures in our Bible that one of the most profitable scriptures for us at this particular moment is to hear from God in this book of Zechariah, which speaks of God's plans for the future, for Israel, for Judah, and for all those who are his people, like we who are gathered here this morning in the name of Jesus. We come this morning in chapter 2 to a remarkable chapter. It is unique. Um, I'll just give you one example. Did you know that the only place in all Scripture where the land of Israel is called the Holy Land is the chapter that we are reading this morning? It is remarkable. It is wonderful. And I hope this morning that it will fill your heart with joy with comfort, with anticipation, and most of all, with love for and awe in your God and your Lord Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 1, Zechariah sees this third vision in the night. He says, I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, there was a man with a measuring cord in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him and said to him, run, speak to that young man, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. Indeed, I, declares Yahweh, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares Yahweh, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens, declares Yahweh. Woe, Zion, escape you who are living with the daughter of Babylon, for thus says Yahweh of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which have taken you as spoil. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be as spoil for their slaves. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming. And I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. And many nations will join themselves to Yahweh in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. And Yahweh will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. 
Be silent, all flesh, before Yahweh, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh God, you have our attention. We pray now that by your Spirit, you would make plain and clear what is written, and that most of all, by your Spirit, you would grant us faith, and that we might respond in obedience to your word, that in faith, even now, we would be glad and rejoice in the future that you have for your people, which is our lot and our portion, the people of Christ. May he be praised now as we preach, as we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. It's only been a little over two weeks since Saturday, October 7th, when we heard grievous news that vile, wretched, evil men, Bible calls them sons of Belial, kind of characters that with guns and bombs and grenades went into unsuspecting Jewish villages in southern Judea slaughtered men and women, young, old, worse. We who are living since just two weeks ago are in a unique position to understand just how violent and demonic much of the world's hatred is of Jews and of Israel. We've heard in the past few weeks, if you've read the news or watched the news at all, we've heard a lot about walls. And we've learned what happens when wicked men break through walls meant to protect and attack villages in Judah. The world is in an uproar. Just yesterday or a few days ago, maybe it was, some 100,000 people marched in the streets of London to decry Israel for defending herself. Make no mistake, we, we grieve the innocent loss of life. Men and women, boys and girls in Gaza, it's, it's terrible. But... These wretched, evil, vile men, whatever their name may be, they are the ones responsible. And it is interesting, where have been the protests in the streets of Gaza or other places against Hamas? Notice they're absent. There's a hatred of Israel. There's a age-long fighting against these people, and it's for good reason, because God in his sovereign plan chose a man named Abram from Ur 
area of modern-day Iraq, and set his love on him. Chose Abram, not because Abram was particularly impressive, smart, brilliant, but in the sovereign, gracious kindness of God, the mystery of his will, set his love on Abram and gave to Abram a promise that through him and his descendants, his seed, all nations of the world, families of the world, would ultimately be blessed. Satan heard that promise, took note of it. By the way, Satan has an absolutely accurate and very high view of Scripture. Did you know that? Satan probably has a higher view of Scripture, than, sadly, than any of us because he's been in a unique place to see how it's been fulfilled down to the most minute detail throughout the centuries. And Satan, who has a very high view of God's promises, knows that God does what he says he will do, took note of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became Israel, and saw that that line was a group of people that God had a particular purpose for. God loves all mankind, and he created all nations. And in fact, nations are a creation of God. They are part of the plan and intent of God. But among the nations, God chose this one little insignificant nation as a vehicle, as a means, as a an instrument by which he would cause the hope of the gospel to be preserved, to be established ultimately in a son of David, the line of Judah, whose name is Jesus of Nazareth, who being the king, the promised one, the Messiah, who himself is the embodiment of the gospel, who would live for sinners, die for sinners, that through this people, Israel, and ultimately in Jesus Christ, that God would triumph over Satan, over evil, over wickedness. And so Satan takes note. And even if he can't touch Jesus, he can touch those who have anything to do with Jesus, anything to do with God, any association with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Satan hates Christians, and Satan hates Jews. Because both of these identities, and of course there are Jewish Christians, all the first Christians were Jewish, but Satan hates the Jewish people, he hates the nation Israel, he hates Christians wherever they are found because God has promises that are given to these specific entities. Sadly, And strangely, many pastors, evangelical pastors and Bible interpreters today insist that the regathering regathering of Jews to the land of Israel and the establishment of the nation in 1948 has little or nothing to do with the Bible or scriptural prophecy. For example, one commentator I was reading this week commenting commenting on Zechariah chapter 2 because he presupposes that the modern church comprised of Jews and Gentiles, that we are now Israel, spiritually speaking, that we are Jerusalem. He says the church, in other words, one interpretation, for example, just to give you an idea of 
Zechariah chapter 2, in there being a future Jerusalem with no walls, he says what that means is this. The church today is no longer hemmed in by protective restrictions, but is open to all. And as the church takes on the mantle of Jerusalem, so the promises become true in the church. So we are the Holy Land. We are the city of Jerusalem, I guess. Which means that in Zechariah 2, what that really means is there's actually no real land, according to that kind of interpretation. There's actually no real city in the future called Jerusalem, no capital city here on earth. It means that whatever God's saying about these villages in Judah, there's no real villages because I guess we're Judah. Because there's no real ethnic reconstitution of Judah in the last days. There's no tribes. <laughs> well, what's the problem with that? means that God's broken his promise. Well, this commentator went on to say, it's not as though the terms of the promise are broken. <laughs> if, if you have an interpretation of scripture that leads you to a place where you're having to say, well, but it doesn't mean that God's promises are broken, you have a bad interpretation. And think with me just for a moment. What kind of encouragement would it be to Zechariah and the people to whom he was originally speaking? As we've learned in the last few weeks, the days of Zechariah were very discouraging days. A small group of, of Jews had returned from exile in Babylon, a, a remnant, a tiny remnant of what the once nation once was. They've come to a city that is in rubble that looks not much unlike the pictures that you see of Gaza in these days. That's what Jerusalem's like. It's it, Jerusalem's like. It's after the Babylonians went through, it was just rubble. There's no walls. The wall won't be rebuilt until some many years later under the leadership of Nehemiah. The temple, what about the temple? The temple is being rebuilt, but, but it had come to a halt. In part because when they started rebuilding the foundation under the encouragement of Haggai, the, uh, 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 under the encouragement of Haggai, the prophet, and out of the command of God. <laughs> we learn in the book of Haggai that after they laid the first foundation stones, that, in Ezra rather, that, that the people were so discouraged. Some of them were weeping because the, the new temple, the rebuilt temple, was going to be so pathetic in comparison to the Solomon temple built by Solomon. These are discouraging days. The work on the temple has come to a halt. They have enemies who are discouraging them. The people are discouraged and so on. So, so with all that discouragement, can you imagine if you take the interpretation that some have and is very popular today, that there's no real future for Israel. There's no real future Jerusalem. Imagine what kind of encouragement that would have been to Zechariah and the people to whom he was writing and speaking. Imagine if God had said to Zechariah and the people at that time something like this. Oh, Zechariah, these promises I'm giving you here in chapter 2 about a new Jerusalem and, and rebuilt walls, um, all that will be realized in an entity that you don't really know about right now. It's called the church. Um, 
And by the way, it will be comprised mostly of Gentiles. Uh, take heart, I'll include a few ethnic Jews in there. And, um, and Zechariah, don't, don't worry, you know, there actually isn't going to be a city. Uh, villages, cattle, all that kind of stuff. It just means that this new entity called the church, they'll thrive spiritually. Uh, don't worry, I'll include a few Jews in there, and, and I'll call them the 12 tribes, and, and they'll be Israel and Judah. Isn't that encouraging to you? How would that have hit Zechariah? How would that have hit the people to whom God was speaking? Doesn't wash, does it? I've taken the time at the outset of this sermon to spend a little bit on this interpretive issue because you need to understand we are at a fork in the road. There, there is one of two ways to go. Either God spoke clearly using names and words references that Zechariah and his contemporaries knew and understood and we are to anticipate in large part a literal fulfillment of these things or at this juncture we are to mysticize all of these specific references apply them to the church and really at that point there's no rules right because it just means it's going to work out for the church. It's good. <laughs> we are at a fork in the road, and I have taken the time here at the outset of this sermon to help explain to you that though many in our day insist that there will be no actual literal fulfillment, no restoration of the land, we as a church are absolutely committed to taking God's word at its most clear, plain, understandable, reasonable meaning. And we understand that that means that we, we part ways, even with some of our, in our interpretation, with some of our beloved brothers and sisters. But from here on out, we will study these things as though what God said he would do, he'll actually do. Just like when he promised all those specific promises about the first coming of Christ down to the most minute detail. Just as he fulfilled those promises, he will fulfill them to Israel, to Judah, to Jerusalem. And this morning here as Believers in Jesus the Messiah, most of us, I presume, Gentiles, we have been made part of the people of God. We even learn that in chapter 2, verse 11. God says many nations will join themselves to the Lord Yahweh in that day and they will become my people. We are his people. By faith in the Lord Jesus, Gentiles, we are every bit as much as his people as any ethnic descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, insofar as we are people of faith, we are with our Jewish brothers and sisters, believers in Jesus Christ, we comprise, we comprise the people of God. It is those who are of faith who are ultimately in, in true descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet that does not obliterate 
the ethnic distinctions any more than when Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. Are there still men here this morning and are there still women here this morning? Yes, and there will be. The distinction there that Paul was talking about in Galatians was of value. That Jews were not inherently more valuable than Gentile believers, any more than men are somehow inherently more valuable than women, both made in the image of God, and then Jew and Gentile, both redeemed by the blood of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so we are, as Gentiles, among the many nations that God refers to here and elsewhere in Scripture. And because Israel's God is our God, there is no other God. And because Israel's Savior and Messiah is our Savior and Messiah, there is no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved. And because our God and our Savior loves Israel and Judah and Jerusalem and Zion, we as Gentile believers find joy in these prophecies and hope and comfort. We learn of the wonderful ways God will deal with Israel and Judah in the last days. But more than that, we learn about our God, his character, his power, mercy, compassion, zeal, love, and glory. And those who comprise the church, which we are, those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ here this morning and all around the world, we who are the church will one day be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We will be raptured. We will be with the Lord. And then we will return with the Lord when he comes to this earth in glory. Get this in your head, believer. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will be resurrected and you will be a witness with your resurrected eyes and your perfect mind to all the glorious fulfillments of God's word. And so, for example, I, for one, look forward to walking in the expansive streets of the millennial Jerusalem and the thousand year of Christ. I'm planning on it. Well, plenty of time. And my one bad knee will be made new. <laughs> right? I'm looking forward to walking in those streets. I- I'm looking forward to walking in the lanes of the villages beautiful, overflowing with animals and, and crops all surrounding Jerusalem. I look forward to hearing the birds, seeing the trees. I look forward to seeing boys and girls playing in safety. I look forward to seeing the light of the glory of Yahweh the Lord filling the sky. And I don't know if I'll actually see the wall of fire around the city of Jerusalem, but we will know that our Lord is there because we will see his Shekinah glory beaming ultimately from the face of our resurrected, glorified Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the King, the Son of David, the Lion of Judah, reigning from his throne in Jerusalem. I'm going to see that. And he, of course, will be the greatest joy of our hearts. Everything else, the safety, the beauty, 
the glory of the city, of the villages, of the people, the absence of sickness, the absence of violence, the joy of it all will all be to the praise and the glory of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm getting ahead of myself. But I'm encouraging you to get a little ahead of yourself. We need to, in faith, listen to the word of God and then let our hearts and minds enjoy by faith a little bit of what it will be like. And, and yes, it may be in that day that you and I, likely that you and I are going to say, I could never have imagined how glorious it would be. Oh, yes, that will be true. But we can, because of the clarity of God's word, anticipate truly and accurately. And there's some of you, I don't know this, but I'm looking forward to, I might just be able to say to you, you who sat under my preaching, I told you so. <laughs> With love, of course. Because there won't be any sin. I told you so. I, I, and and I, I apologize. I really didn't do a good job telling you how good it would be. So with that, I'm getting ahead. So let's go back to the text. But I, I took that time. And I'm not going to do that every Sunday from here on here out. You just need to know that among Christians and among many pastors and interpreters today, all these promises, they say, are somehow fulfilled mystically spiritually in the church and you just need to know we deny that and we strongly affirm the plain meaning of scripture so I want to look with you this morning at this passage we will move quickly in chapter 2 it's it's really quite understandable there's not a lot I need to explain to you most of all I just need to help you rejoice Because that is the theme of the chapter, verse 10. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. And I've told you at the outset that though, yes, God is calling his beleaguered people, a remnant of believing Jews in the last days to rejoice, you and I as believers in Christ, we are the people of God. This is our future too. This is our comfort. And so we are to sing for joy and be glad. Do you need to hear that this morning? Do you need to hear that in this dark and discouraging world? Well, what could possibly cause me to sing and be glad? Let me show you. All right, let's go. Let's look together. Well, first of all, just by, I need to remind you that this is the third vision. Uh, Zechariah is receiving these visions in the night. He's already seen this glorious, mysterious figure on a red horse who is the commander of the armies of the Lord of hosts. He is already, we've already been introduced to this mysterious pre-incarnate visitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've reminded you that these are discouraging days when these visions come. God is giving to Zechariah and his people reason for them to look up, to not give in to discouragement. Jerusalem's walls at this point are in rubble. The enemies are surrounding them. And we know that these things spoken of in chapter 2 even as of this morning are still yet future because none of them have been realized in history what point could you look to in history where the glorious descriptions here that God gives could be said true of Jerusalem or even the church for that matter 
if you want to spiritualize it. And so these things are in the future. This is still in yet to come. And yet again, remember that as we learn about what God's going to do in the future, even as we learned in Sunday school this morning, God does not change. So what we learn of how God is in the future and how he will act, we can take comfort from is how God is now. This is our God here this morning. So reasons to sing for joy and be glad. I want to give you seven reasons from the text this morning. I'm just going to walk through it with you. First, in verses 1 and 2, our Lord will rebuild Jerusalem. Our Lord will rebuild Jerusalem and make it an expansive and glorious city. An expansive and glorious city. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Zechariah, again, his, lifts up his eyes. This is uh, now the, the third vision. It's a key that he's, he's going from vision to vision on the same night. This is what God is revealing to him. And he sees a man with a measuring cord in his hand, verse 1. We call it a tape measure. It's a big tape measure. Um, and, and, and he asks him a question, verse 2. Zechariah asks this man a question. Where are you going? And he says to measure Jerusalem to see how wide it is and how long it is. The text is overflowing with, with uh, wonder. What do you mean? It's just, this, the city at this point is in rubble. You can, you can stand probably on a hill and see, like, there it is. You, can, you know the dimensions. This is in line with God's promises to Ezekiel the prophet, that in the thousand-year reign of Christ, that God is going to cause a, a Jerusalem to be rebuilt. It is going to be massive. It is going to be glorious large, and, and there's a sense of joy in verses 1 and 2. This, is, this man is, is, has anticipation. He's, he's going with excitement to measure Jerusalem. It has dimensions. I mean, what do you do with that if you spiritualize the church? It has measurements. It's, it's large. It's glorious. It's expansive. And, and our Lord will rebuild Jerusalem. That is God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a possibility here and likelihood that this man with the measuring cord is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, It's not absolutely certain. But in Ezekiel, there's a similar uh, kind of presentation of uh, that man. And and the man in Ezekiel who's measuring the city seems to be a little bit different than your average angel. And this man here is, is eager to measure the dimensions of Jerusalem. Whether it's an angel or whether it's the pre-incarnate Christ, the, the emphasis is clear. God is going to rebuild Jerusalem in the last days, and it will be large and it will be expansive. Secondly, our Lord, our Lord will cause his people to thrive in safety. Our Lord will cause his people to thrive in safety in and around the city. Verses 3 through 5. The angel who is speaking with Zechariah, this is uh, the same angel who's in the previous visions. It's kind of like his guide, his personal guide. This isn't the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an angel who is 
speaking with Zechariah, and he was going out, and another angel's coming out to meet him. What, what's going on with this coming and going here? It's, it's visualizing eagerness. God in heaven is excited, and as I say that reverently, to share joyful news with his people. It's urgent that God sends this one angel to go out and this other one to come and to get the message back to that young man, namely Zechariah. I mean, the angels aren't young. You can't say Jesus is young. God certainly isn't young. He's the ancient of days. So the young man is likely Zechariah himself. And there's a sense here of excitement, of urgency, importance. God wants Zechariah to know and then pass it on to the people this wonderful news in verses 4 and 5. Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls. It doesn't mean there won't be any walls. It means that, that the people will... The time will be so glorious, such safety, such multiplication of the people that, that they'll overflow this large expanded city and spill out into, into villages and lanes and fields surrounding the city. It's a scene of abundance, of, of thriving, of joy. The Lord will cause his people to thrive in safety and I say this with wonder, with some pain, but since October 7th, just a little over two weeks ago, I'm serious, among the Christians who have lived since the time of Christ, as those who have witnessed what happens to Jewish people in villages, in towns, when they are unprotected. We are in a very unique historical moment to understand the significance of verses 4 and 5. And with that comes a responsibility. I know not all of us read the news. and You don't have to be a news junkie. You need to know what happened recently in Israel. So that when we come to a promise like this in verses 4 and 5, We understand the significance of it. There will be thriving in verse 4. In other words, they will spill over the walls. The walls will not be for safety. We'll come to that in a moment. But they give form and shape and glory to the city. And there will be a multitude of men. During the millennial kingdom of Christ, there will still be some redeemed men and women who go into the millennium who are not yet glorified, there still will be marriage between husbands and wives. Not for those of us who are resurrected with Christ, but there will be some who go into the millennium. When Christ comes, there will be some who go into that thousand-year reign of Christ, redeemed by the blood of Christ, but there will still be marriage. And other prophecies, for example, in Isaiah, speak of boys and girls playing in the streets. I love that. And this is during this period of time, this thousand-year reign of Christ. And God will cause his people, Israel and Judah, and all those there, those from many nations who have come, to thrive, and they will multiply. There will be no disease. There will be no sickness under the reign of Christ. No threats. No divisions. The earth itself will thrive under the reign of Christ, but Jerusalem, the capital city, will be a specially place of, of overflow of blessing. 
and cattle will be there. And, and the idea is, is that there's just there's joyful abundance everywhere, the removal of the curse. The, the veterinarians won't have much to do. Because even creation itself, which is groaning now, Paul says in Romans 8, for the revealing of the sons of God, that's us, that's the glorious things to come, that the creation, when Christ comes, will no longer be groaning. In other words, the curse will be removed. Animals, will, animals won't have sickness. And so there'll be a time of, of abundance, of joy, of beauty, of peace, of thriving, all under the reign and the rule God will cause, Christ present will cause his people to thrive in, thrive, and they will thrive in safety. Safety. There will still be wicked sinners in the world. During that time, they'll, be, they'll have their heads low, they'll be quiet. But if anybody wanted to hurt the people of Jerusalem, verse 5, Indeed, I, declares Yahweh, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. A wall of fire. Reminds us a little bit of the pillar of fire that led the people of Israel out of Egypt, and when Pharaoh changed his mind and got all grumpy again and got his soldiers together and chased Israel out and backed them up against the Red Sea and, and at that point was just interested in probably slaughtering them. The pillar of fire, that is the Lord Jesus himself, moves from in front of the people of Israel to behind the people of Israel between them and the Egyptians. And the most powerful in the army in the world didn't think too much about going up to this helpless group of people because there was a pillar of fire between them. In this case, it's not just a pillar. It's a wall. God himself will be a wall of fire we're concerned about safety. We understand the complexity of safety. We understand in our day the complexity of sorting out between uh, foe and friend. We understand how even the most advanced technologies have a difficulty anticipating someone who will do harm. Think of it. Wall of fire, who is none other than the Lord himself, if you want to go to Jerusalem, if you want to go to his people, you've got to pass through that wall of fire. And if you have an intent to harm his people, you know what you're like? Those of you who are reading uh, Numbers recently, you're like Adab and Abihu. Think of it. If you want to touch God's people, you will have to pass through the wall of fire. And God who knows all things, the thoughts and the intents of the hearts, if you intend harm to his people, you are fried toast, burned, incinerated instantaneously. Didn't need to rely on any technology. God himself will sort it out. It might make you a little nervous, but it shouldn't. You think, well, I'm not sure I'm going to want to pass through that wall of fire. Dear Christian, get this in your heart and your head. If you're in Christ, you live in the presence of that fire every single day because that is the only God. We live in the presence of the Holy One who is a consuming fire. And how are we safe? Because we are in Jesus. Our God is a consuming fire. 
and he will surround Jerusalem in the last days and his people as a wall of fire. I love that image. I hope you like that too. It'll make the Iron Dome look like nothing. Thirdly, our verses 6 and 7, our Lord will regather his people Israel and Judah from their exile. In these verses, verses 3 through 5, the Lord issues a call. I'm sorry, verses um, 6 and 7. In verses 6 and 7, it's urgent. Behold, ho there. He's crying out, flee from the land of the north. That would be the region where Assyria was and then later Babylon and then the Persians. Flee because God in judgment had dispersed Israel and Judah to the four winds of the heaven. And we see that in reality today. Jews all around the world. And God will in the last days issue a massive call that will result in an ingathering. And they will return from exile. Our Lord will regather his people, Israel and Judah, from their exile. I'm being specific, Israel and Judah, because verse 12 says, Yahweh will inherit Judah. See, you can't mysticize these. Judah was an identifiable tribe of the people of Israel of old. It was the southern kingdom. Israel was an identifiable people of old. Our Lord will regather his people, Israel and Judah, from their exile. Fourthly, verses 8 and 9. Oh, and here's a highlight. Our Lord Jesus will fight against those who threaten his people of Israel. Our Lord Jesus will fight against those who threaten his people Israel, the apple of his eye. If the man in verse One is not the pre-incarnate Christ. That is debatable. This figure here in verses 8 and 9, this is not debatable. Look at it. Verse 8. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, after glory he, that's Yahweh, has sent me. Oh, who's that? That's not Zechariah. He, Yahweh, the Lord, has sent me against the nations which have taken you as spoil, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. This mysterious figure is still talking, for I will wave my hand over them so that they will be spoiled for their slaves. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me. That's the Messiah. That's our Lord Jesus, the warrior the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's saying, I am going to fight for you. And what does Jesus have to do in order to fight when he shows up? Does he have to accumulate a large arsenal, nuclear missiles? Does he have to store up lots of battleships, aircraft carriers? Uh Uh-uh. You can assemble all the evil, wicked men of the world. And when it comes to it, and again, believers, you, we will see this. We will be with him. We will come with him. We will see his triumph over his enemies. He will slay them with a word from his mouth and here in verse 9 with a wave of his hand. I, I don't know how it's going to be. You know, I don't know if it's going to be like this or like this. But he doesn't even have to punch him. Our Lord Jesus, I, I'm pointing you to the text. Verse 9, so I'm not making this up. The Lord Jesus 
will dispense with the enemies of Israel and Judah with a wave of his hand. Because he is the omnipotent king. He will fight for his people. We've already learned that our Lord is a warrior king. Here again we see that he fights for his people. I hope you love that about Jesus. I love that about Jesus. And notice what he says in verse 8. For he who touches you. He's talking there initially about Israel, Judah, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital city. God set his love on this people. It doesn't mean that he loves them somehow more than, than us. But God in his holiness can choose to have a peculiar affection and love for these people who he used in a holy way for his holy purposes. They are the pupil of his eye. In other words, God loves men and women of all sorts. He loves the nations, but he has a peculiar love for Israel. Touch Israel, you touch the pupil of his eye. And again, that's why Satan hates them. And that's why even today the world rages against Israel. Fifth, verses 10 and 11, our Lord himself will dwell in Jerusalem. Remember, we're learning reasons to sing for joy and be glad. Our Lord himself, Jesus, will dwell in Jerusalem among his people. Verse 10, sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming and will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. How does God visibly dwell among his people? In the person of his son, Jesus. Jesus will return. Jesus will dwell in Jerusalem among his people. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion. Our Lord himself will dwell in Jerusalem. He will be with us. Sixth reason this morning, verse 11, our Lord will cause many nations to be joined to his people. Verse 11, many nations will join themselves. So among the nations, from among the nations, God will elect and save men and women of every nation, every tribe who love God, who love Jesus and who will come and join their Jewish brethren in worshiping the lamb that was slain. They will join themselves to the Lord and they will become my people. Men and women who were once not God's people by faith in Jesus Christ will become his people. But just because they become his people doesn't mean that God eliminates all distinctions. In fact, again, in the book of Revelation, in the end, we don't find one nation, Israel. We find Israel and a multitude of nations praising God. The wonderful unity and diversity of the people of God. So our Lord will cause many nations to be joined to his people. Micah chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 has a wonderful, beautiful prophecy. Just listen to it. It will be in the last days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh, that's Jerusalem, the capital city, that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as head of the mountains. It will be lifted up above the hills Peoples will stream to it, and many nations will come and say, 
Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us from his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. Beautiful picture. Beautiful picture. A seventh and final reason this morning, very close to number five, which we've already examined, that he will dwell among his people. But in verses 12 and 13, verse 12 in particular, notice, Yahweh will inherit Judah as his portion. So if you're taking notes, our Lord, the God of heaven, will inhabit the Holy Land. Our Lord, the God of heaven, will inhabit the Holy Land with his people, Judah. I'm being specific there because there's a tendency to take away the details, to strip it of its specificity. But the Lord God, Yahweh, will inherit not just his people. He's already said he's going to save people from lots of different nations, and they will be his people. But even though he will save lots of different people from lots of different nations, he still set his love on Judah and Israel, and he will dwell in Judah as his portion. And here is that phrase, curse here only in the Old Testament and in Scripture, the holy land, the holy land. A whole lot of promises in the Old Testament have to do with the land. And there's a tendency for a modern Christianity to de-land the promises of God so that the church, we end up becoming Jerusalem, Israel, Judah, the land, the whole thing, which means that when you say that all those things don't really mean something, then they all mean nothing. God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a specific promise of a particular land. And God calls that the holy land. All the earth will be the Lord's. But that particular piece of turf in the Middle East that is so contended in our present hour will in that day be holy to the Lord. It is the holy land. Now you know what land is. I know what land is. Land isn't a person. A land isn't a building. A land is dirt, has terrain, has vegetation, has streams. And I, for one, I, I like God's creation of land. I like it. I think it's pretty neat. I like to see hills, don't you? And fields and vegetation. And God is going to redeem that land from all of its wars and devastation. He's going to renew it under the millennial reign of Christ And he will, the God of heaven in the person of Christ, will inhabit. He will make his his central meeting place with his people visibly in the holy land. With Judah, with Israel, with you, believer, with me, and with all those redeemed of the Lord. Now, I know there's some questions in chapter 2. I know still that maybe there's a few remaining, huh, what about? I get it. But dear brothers and sisters, honor the word of God. 
And let your heart be filled this morning with comfort that this God is your God. This Christ is your Christ. These things are coming to pass. So in these days of darkness, in these difficult last days, when we hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't let your heart be cast down too far. Lift up your eyes. Let your heart rejoice and be glad. Because the king is coming. He's going to possess his city, rebuild it. He's going to bless his people. He's going to defend them. And by his grace, we who are believers in Jesus Christ, we will be among them. These are glorious things, aren't they? And at the heart and the center of all these things is our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't resist the Holy Spirit. Let your heart be filled with anticipation and joy. And let's worship our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. These are things that are too wonderful for us, O oh God. It's hard for us to take it in, but you've been clear, you've been plain. And how we thank you that you are such a glorious and gracious God who loves his people so, so faithful to your promises. May the hearts of your people this day be lifted up. We have many sorrows in this world, personal, national, global. Give life to the faith of your people today, that soon and very soon, you, Lord, are coming for us and then coming to this earth to establish your kingdom without end. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.